you're listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org. Well, good morning, and keep your Bibles open to Ephesians 2 with me, will you? I was but a high school student in 1987 when President Ronald Reagan gave one of his more famous Cold War speeches. He was against the backdrop of the Berlin Wall. For those who may not know the story, the Berlin Wall was erected in 1961, more than a decade after the World War II conflict, separating the city of Berlin from East Berlin to West, essentially dividing it among two nations, those who were friendly to communist forces and those who were friendly to the Americas, Great Britain, and France. And for 40 years, nearly 40 years, this wall divided the city and divided the nations. Some of you remember John Fitzgerald Kennedy's uh, bringing the planes in of goods back in the day. More than 140 people died trying to cross that wall, moving from communist lockdown into freedom. It was, it was well guarded. So it was against the backdrop of this, backdrop of this wall in 1987 that then President, President Ronald Reagan stood there, as you're seeing on the screens, and declared to the West Berlin crowd these words. There is one sign, there is one sign the Soviets can make that would be unmistakable, that would advance the cause of freedom and peace. It was then that President Reagan called upon his Soviet counterpart, Secretary General Gorbachev, if you seek peace, if you seek prosperity, for the Soviet Union and Eastern Europe, if you seek liberalization, come here to this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, open this gate. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. What I did not remember was it took two more years before that wall came down. Reagan was no longer president, and then it was George H.W. Bush that took over. But the wall finally came down. Some of you may have bits and pieces of that Berlin Wall. But it was not the greatest tear down the wall moment. That is left to Jesus Christ. Jesus is the greatest tear down that wall moment. As the Bible says on Easter Sunday the first, that the curtain was torn from top to bottom. This morning I want to show you from the pages of Scripture how the cross of Jesus how the Bible speaks of the blood of Jesus, shorthand for the cross and his death, how the blood of Jesus, it will in fact bring reconciliation to all races and all forms of prejudice. That the death of Jesus, the truth of his death, reconciles us not only to God, but it reconciles us to one another. Here in Ephesians 2, as we've been doing verse by verse, we're going to see that God brings all races together. That's the end-time prediction of the book of Revelation, that heaven one day will have. God is specifically campaigning now and working to populate heaven with every tribe of every tongue. He's selecting them all to populate heaven. And so I want to just remind you that we're just moving through this Bible, this book of Ephesians, verse by verse. And I just want to tell you, just remind you again, some of you, that Paul is writing this from prison. Chapter 3, verse 1. He writes from prison. He's not writing from the ivory tower of an ivy league. He's not writing from 
uh, New Haven, Connecticut, the home of Yale. He's not writing from outside of Boston, Massachusetts, the home of Harvard or MIT. He's writing from jail. Now, why does that matter? It matters for this reason. Perhaps the most segregated, racist, I should say racist, not segregated, racist place in Texas are modern American jails. There's the Mexican Mafia and the Aryan Brotherhood. And prisons are notorious for their prison gangs based on race. Now, do you think the first century Roman prison was a picture of racial harmony when they all sing Kumbaya together? Paul writes from a hot, unventilated, underground, filthy prison. These memorial words on the power of bringing us together as one people, the power of the gospel. Now, as we speak today of this, I would be amiss if I did not mention the instance north of us in Minnesota. Officer Kim Potter, thinking that she was uh, tasing an unarmed black man, mistakenly picked up her weapon and shot him. This was but 10 miles away. The death of Dante Wright was but 10 miles away from the trial of Derek Chauvin, the police officer who put his knee on George Floyd's neck. Few things I've seen on video have detested me more than what I saw that day. And honorable officers have rightfully distanced themselves and spoken of Officer Chauvin's actions as anything but worthy of the badge. And the truth is, as we do this today and talk about race from the Bible, I hurt for everyone involved in Minnesota, and I imagine you do too. Those people are beleaguered. And as I think about, as I come to Ephesians 2, I think about my own life a little bit and how I was slow to learn of prejudice, and I was slow, slow to learn of racism. I was a young boy visiting my grandfather Alvin in Pittsburgh. He was a machinist in the steel mills there. And I can to this day remember seeing all those erect and up. And I could see him working, coming back from work, that kind of thing, along with my dad. And I was a huge baseball fan. And because where I grew up had no team, I was an early adopter to the Pittsburgh Pirates. And he took me to my first baseball game, the old Three Rivers. We sat behind on plate. And those dirty New York Mets beat my Pittsburgh Pirates 3-1 to one that day. And Willie Stargell was there on first base, Pops. And so he, my grandfather, got me into baseball cards. And I would look at the back of those, and I would calculate the stats, and I would go on and on about home run hitters like Willie Stargell and Hank Aaron. And he taught me a man's name that I had never known, a man by the name of Josh Gibson. Josh Gibson does not give him the privilege of playing in the major leagues. He played in the Negro Leagues. He was from Homestead, Pennsylvania, the very place where my grandfather spent the majority of his life. Now, what I did not know about Josh was he was known as the Black Babe Ruth. He had 84 home runs in one year and hit over 800 in his lifetime. Take that, Barry Bonds. <laughs> but it was bewildering to me as a young 10-year-old in Pittsburgh. How was he not permitted to play Major League Baseball? In the moments to come, I want you to see how the truth of Scripture combats prejudice of all kinds, all kinds. Not just ethnicity, Gentiles and Jews, black and white, but prejudice against generations. 
prejudice against those who wear masks and don't wear masks and those men who have long beards and aren't groomed and those of us who shave their faces. Prejudice against women and prejudice against men. The gospel of Jesus Christ is uniquely equipped with the horsepower to battle against the inherent prejudice we all have. Look with me, beginning in the text of Scripture in verses 13 and 14. The Bible says these words, But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's the death of Jesus. By the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us one and has broken down in his flesh the divining wall of hostility. Now, in the moments to come, what I want you to see is how the Bible is uniquely equipped to defeat prejudice. Because the Bible does something different than your diversity training in your corporate world. It does something different than the media is purporting. The Bible is not going to use tolerance to defeat racism and prejudice. The Bible is going to use truth to defeat prejudice and racism. And I hope to show that. And the truth, you'll see in verse 13, those who were far away, races, Gentiles, that's me, I was far away. My, my, the Bible generally says there's Jews and non-Jews. So the people who did not have the Bible, the Gentiles, were far away. We've been brought near by Jesus, the blood of Jesus, verse 13. Jesus is our peace in verse 14. But the Bible doesn't stop there. Keep reading in verse 15 where the Bible says, By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace, verse 16, and, make, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, killing the hostility. Jesus abolished the divisions. Where there is two, now there is one. In verse 15, Jesus is the one who reconciles us to God and to one another. Notice those words. It's not just I'm reconciled vertically, I'm reconciled horizontally. And again, it doesn't stop there. It keeps going. Verse 17, and Jesus, he came and preached peace to those who were far off and peace to those who were near. Four, verse 18, through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So the Bible's teaching me that Jesus is offering peace to those who are far from God. That's me. I was far from God. My people were far from God. He brings that peace. Verse 17, he preached peace to those who were near to God. That's the Jewish people who had the covenants. Paul, the author of Ephesians, is a Jew. Jesus was a Jew. Most of your Bible is written by Jew. God selected Israel to communicate and be an ambassador to the rest of the world to communicate the good news of Jesus. Not only that, Jesus gives us access, verse 18, to the Holy Spirit and to the Father. And if you put it together, you'll notice this theme, verses 14, 15, and 17, where Jesus is our peace, Jesus makes peace, and Jesus proclaims peace. That's good. But it doesn't stop there. The truth continues in verses 20, 21, and 22, that built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself, being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, who's the whole structure is being joined together, grows in the holy temple of the Lord. The foundation is Jesus in him. You also are being built together in the dwelling place by God, for God, by the Spirit. So he's the foundation, Jesus is. He's the cornerstone of all this new unified humanity. It's built on him, verse 20. He 
unifies races. Verse 22, and he's superior in every way. So the Bible attacks prejudice, and we all have prejudice. I have prejudice, you have prejudice. It attacks prejudice with a club called truth. But if we step outside these walls, or if we step even in the hallways, we're trained in the American gospel, we're trained by the media, we're trained by our corporate diversity training and our education to defeat prejudice and racism by diversity training, by tolerance. And there's a difference between those two. The diversity training that we go through in all places, we're told to be respectful of one another's differences, which is a wonderful thing. We're to be compassionate with one another, which is an awesome thing. But this is the piece here that oftentimes diverges from the biblical truth. And teenagers, I want you to listen carefully. I want you to be thinking how the gospel defeats prejudice. Because outside these walls, we're told that we should not endorse any idea that puts another person down. I'm not to endorse any idea that even if it seemingly offends someone or puts them down. Certainly, the gospel doesn't want to put people down. But oftentimes, this last piece creates victims. In an American society, if I can take the place of a victim, if I can adopt the role of a victim, then I've won all arguments. Because the victim is the strength, that's the position of strongness. If I can adopt the place of a victim, then the victim is always right. And this is where diversity training says you must not tell the truth because the truth is arrogant. The truth divides. So we have to hide the truth in order to promote tolerance. But the challenge with that is the victim wins. Anyone who feels put down when another person is given the microphone, and if you've offended me in some way, even if you've told the truth, even if you've come up to me and you're my doctor and you said, you need to lose some weight, boy. And I say, you know, I'm offended by that, and I'm a victim. I don't say this to antagonize anybody or to pick a fight with anybody. I've got a teenage son. I've got enough fights already. I don't, <laughs> I don't want to do that. I bring this point up because racism and prejudice is a deep, sinful position, and if you're going to defeat it and battle it in your heart, you've got to have a tool that has the proper horsepower to defeat it. You don't want to bring, you don't want to bring in the rock, paper, scissors, if we're having a knife fight, we don't want to bring paper. What do you want to do with a knife fight? You want to bring a gun. Some of you are in church, you're afraid to say it. You know what you're going to bring. <laughs> Quit playing you're so holy, my gracious. <laughs> and when I, when I throw out truth, for the sake of tolerance and diversity, where the truth is forbidden, then I've not brought a tool that has the great horsepower. The horsepower is Jesus Christ. He's the one that has this. And I want to show you how that works. Because I know you expect me to say that I'm a Baptist preacher and he's supposed to be pro-Jesus, what we pay him for. But I want to show you that in the gospel, the tools are there to defeat your prejudice. Most of you will know the name Jackie Robinson. Several years ago, Jackie Robinson's number, 42, 
Every major league team retired that jersey in honor. He is a special human being by any measure. What you may or may not know is that Jackie Robinson was the first African-American black man to enter into Major League Baseball. Prior to this time, it was segregated. You weren't allowed to play there. But on the 15th of April in 1947, Jackie Robinson donned a Brooklyn Dodgers uniform at the old Ebbets Field. Again, he was special. Went on to become a Hall of Fame baseball player. Again, as I said, his number has been retired by every major league team. But Jack Roosevelt Robinson was also a believer. Did you know that? He was led to faith in Christ by a Bible-thumping Methodist preacher. Not only was he a believer, but the man who chose to integrate baseball, the general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers, himself was an ardent believer. His name was Branch Rickey. Branch Rickey was motivated to integrate baseball because he thought it was God's will. Purposefully, he thought that God wanted him to integrate the league, to give ethnicities the same opportunities. It wasn't because of some secular theory. It wasn't because of that. It was because he was a believer and he was led to the thought to love all people and give everyone an equal chance. So Branch Rickey, the general manager, when he interviews, as this idea comes and formulates, he thinks, okay, who am I going to choose to integrate baseball with? In the interview with Jackie Robinson, they read a book that discusses the Sermon on the Mount together. That's the interview. You know what the Sermon on the Mount says? Turn the other cheek. When you're slapped on the right cheek, offer the next. Do you think that would be important? The general manager of the Brooklyn Dodgers did. He knew it was going to be more than athletic ability to win this argument. He knew that he had to have someone with emotional and spiritual poise because he knew that the secular media was going to whip up a frenzy and the people in the crowds would as well. Jackie Robinson was led to faith in Christ by a 25-year-old young pastor who would see him in the corner hanging out with a group of guys he shouldn't be so he knocked on his door and he told his mother and he told his family, I want to see Jackie tomorrow at church. And Jackie showed up. And this pastor played sports with him and was a confidant to Jackie. Jackie went on to even teach Sunday school. This is where he got the poise to face the taunts, to face the slurs, to face the death threats. He pulled it right from the resources that Jesus offers, turn the other cheek. And the man who, the architect behind this was also a believer. I want to ask you a question. Why is it that I'm almost 50 years of age and the first time I heard about any of this Christian piece that brought together baseball was just this week? Why didn't somebody in the media have a trumpet on this? I'll let you decide that on your own later on. But Jackie got the emotional and spiritual poise to fight the ugliness of racism. Now, where does that come from? The Bible says right there in verse 13 and 14 that the blood of Jesus has the unique ability to unite us like nothing else. Nothing. Now, in Christ Jesus, verse 13, you who were once far away, far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now, if you're reading that with any sober-mindedness, 
you have to say, that's me. I wasn't born on third base with a good lead toward home when it comes to heaven. I was born far off. Jesus came for me. Nothing offers you the resources to defeat the prejudice that's inside you, the racism that's inside you, as Jesus in your heart. Not the American flag doesn't offer the resources. The Democratic Party, the Republican Party, cannot hold a candle to the cross of Jesus Christ. And we're told repeatedly today that sports can unite us. And I'm an ardent sports fan. Put sports in almost every sermon. But sports cannot unite us. Only the horsepower behind the cross of Jesus, or in the words of Ephesians, the blood of Jesus. So it does something here, and I want you to see exactly what it's doing. It's not just the grace of God didn't just come and transform me, and God knows I need to be transformed. But the grace of Jesus transforms us. Look at the text again, back in verse 13 and 14. The Bible says there, he himself is our peace who has made us both one. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. So it's a great thing to be told that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that you may not perish but have everlasting life. And that is undeniably true. But Jesus also came for us, not just you. He came to put us together, us of all ethnicities, us of all races. In fact, the word there in verse 11, Gentiles, speaks of nations. It's right there in there. The text is saying that the Jewish people don't have an inside, inside sort of conference with God, that Jesus came to bring all people. So the Bible doesn't just want to make a new you. The Bible came, Jesus came in order to bring a new us. That's why the church is important. This is to be a colony of heaven, like an ambassador, like an embassy. If I'm in Israel, if I'm in some other nation someplace, and I walk into the embassy of America, it's to have a reflection of my home. And we as a church are supposed to be a reflection. We're to be a colony of heaven. We're to have that incredible compassion. And the cross isn't just designed to fix me. The cross was designed to fix us, to defeat the hostility, to bring us together. So there's a reconciliation here. There's a powerful thing. And again, prejudice comes in all forms. Be careful. You may have defeated the overt racism that the media talks about. But the moment you defeat one, there's a thousand other prejudicial sins that come behind it. Maybe your prejudice is against generations. Maybe your prejudice is against gender. Husbands, do you have to have another man tell you what your wife has been trying to tell you before you will say to her, I think you might be right? Ladies, please be quiet at this moment. (laughs) What about a different class of people? You may be blue collar and despise white collar. You may be no collar. Jesus came to defeat, to defeat all forms of prejudice. Now, if you're going to be a sober-minded, thinking person today, you're going to have to think about your own prejudice. And I want to say by experience, it's difficult to f- figure out your own prejudice. 
It's not too generally you're lifted up out of your context and placed somewhere else that your prejudice becomes really apparent. Over the last 15 years or so, I've taken numerous mission trips to New England, to Colorado, to Canada, to Southeast Asia. It's generally when I left the South that I found other people were wrong. When I went into Asia, frequent trips, I would sit with other believers and worship. And I didn't just dislike their music, I loathed the music. It took me about six to seven days in that first trip, I think. Do they not recognize there's different forms of music? It all was on one beat. And I thought to myself, you know, I'm just going to hang outside here at the worship center. I'm just going to sit out here and wait till the music's done. And then I'll come in for, you know, the, 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 the right part, the good part, the preaching part. And as soon as I thought that in another continent, I thought to myself, Scott, that's exactly what every gray-haired senior adult's been doing over the last 15 years, and you've been telling them, get your derriere up and get inside big church and have worship together. But it went beyond their music. Their music was wrong, but then at the end of the day, a hot, sweaty day, and I thought to myself, what continent doesn't have air conditioning? They wanted us, at the end of a hot, sweaty day, to come into their homes, and they were more hospital, hospitable than us. So they wanted to sit around and talk. But the problem was you had to take your shoes off. Now, nobody told me about my first trip that you were supposed to take your shoes off every time you went anywhere. So I wore tennis shoes with shoelaces, and I'm six foot five. And I don't like bending down frequently. So I would think inwardly, there's nothing wrong with my shoes. What's wrong with a whole continent of people that can't have their shoes on when they walk into the place? This is ridiculous. And then they would drop everything and have tea. Tea at 10 o'clock in the morning. We're in the middle of teaching. We got work to do. We don't have tea. What's wrong with you people drinking tea all the time? Let's get to work. They were so wrong on so many different levels. And then their use of time. Oh, if anything got my shorts in a wad, it was their use of time. I was raised by a Navy CB. Eight o'clock meant 7.50, not 8.45. I tell you all this because I bet you struggle with the same things too. And I didn't see it until I got in those situations. Paul, our author of Ephesians, he has a masterful sentence to describe the human condition. In Romans chapter 7, he says these words, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Haven't you found yourself there? Doing the very thing that you hate? Most of you have been taught that sin is missing the mark, and it is, but there's also another good definition. It was given to us by a man named Martin Luther, the reformer, not Luther King Jr., he said, sin is the curvature on itself. We're curved back in ourselves, which is a fancy way of saying that we're self-centered. You know what the problem with all those examples I just gave you? They weren't like me. They didn't think like me. They weren't doing it the way I thought should be done. And I'm finding as I'm closing in on 50, I've got a whole lot more where the list comes. I don't have to go outside the country now. I just go to my home. 
We've got three young adults. They don't know that there's two sevens and two eights to every 24 hours. They come alive at 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 1 o'clock, and I just want to get up. And I say, for the love of Jesus, will you people go to sleep? Will you people <laughs> turn the lights off? I've been up since like 6 or 7. See, there's a different kind of prejudice. Because if I stop and think about 30 plus years ago, you know who I was? I was that young kid sitting up to 1 o'clock thinking the best time to do my homework was a little after 10.30. And now things have changed. The gospel is to bring us together. And if you're going to go anywhere with Jesus and get anywhere to defeat the prejudice in your heart, then you're going to have to see yourself for who you are. Nothing does a better job of that than the cross of Jesus. Most of you have been taught that the cross of Jesus is God's megaphone to tell you he loves you, and it is. But before the gospel and the cross tells you how much God loves you, it's telling you first and foremost that the Trinity got together and you're so messed up morally and spiritually, the only way that you could be fixed, the only way you could be fixed it necessitated the Son of God dying for you. That's how messed up you are. And it shatters you. It shatters you to realize that's how far off base I am. That's how self-centered I am. I can't really think about prejudice and racism without thinking about a story that I heard years ago from hammering Henry Hank Aaron the man who would go on to hit 755 home runs. He started his baseball career in the Negro Leagues like Josh Gibson did before. And he played when he was 17 years of age for the Indianapolis Clowns. And Hank Aaron said, I remember being outside of Griffith Stadium in Washington, D.C., and we had breakfast, and I quote, we had breakfast, and while we were waiting for the rain to stop, I could still envision sitting with the clowns, his team, in a restaurant behind Griffith Stadium and hearing them break all the plates in the kitchen after we'd finished eating. He said, what a horrible sound. Even as a kid, it hit me, the irony of it hit me. Here we were in the capital of the land of freedom and equality, and they had destroyed the plates that had touched the forks that had been in the mouths of black men. And then he says and concludes, if dogs had have eaten off those plates, they would have simply washed them. Can I say this? God's not going to eat after your plate. He is holy and you're not. And he's going to shatter the plate that's how far off base you are. I don't care your ethnicity. I don't care your education. You're so spiritually and morally messed up that nothing less than the cross of Jesus will fix you. It's not more education. It's not more diversity training. It's not, well, let's get a girl. Maybe a girl can fix him and clean him up. None of that stuff's going to help. You're so far off base that the Trinity got together and they said the only way to fix Scott Mays is the Son of God has to be killed.
and that shatters you. Because when you see that, when you realize it necessitated the Son of God dying, you realize the inherent prejudice, the inherent ugliness, all the self-centeredness that is in me, and it's in you. Friend, you may be here with millions of dollars, and you may think you gained that through your hard work. God has graced you. You may be here today with an alphabet soon behind, behind your name and more degrees on the wall than I can count. Your education is because God has graced you. You may be thankful that you're a Texan and American, but you didn't pick your place of birth. God has graced you. And you may be here today thinking you're the real victim. And maybe you are. Maybe you've been sexually abused. Maybe you've been marginalized. But you're never going to be healed until you see the real victim, and that is Jesus Christ, who did nothing wrong and was crucified for me. Until I recognize the real victim, I'm not free. I don't have a, something to battle against it. I close with this. Many of you may not know the name of Matthew Henry. Matthew Henry was a great Bible commentator in the 1600s. He is consulted even to this day, 400 plus years later, by lay people everywhere. They teach with him. Matthew Henry's parents were excellent people. His dad, Philip Henry, was a fine Christian man. And when he went to marry, when Mr. Henry went to marry the future Mrs. Henry, the problem was the future Mrs. Henry came from a prominent family, but Philip didn't. So the conversation went like this when they were dating. The parents of Matthew's mother approached her and said, hey, um, we're very concerned about this Philip Henry that you're dating. He's not in the social register. None of our friends know anybody in his family. We don't know where he's from. And with great insight and wisdom, the young lady looked at her parents. I don't know where he's from either, but I know where he's going. He's going to the throne of the grace of God. The cross of Jesus Christ, when you understand real grace, that you're not what you think you are, can give you a new identity, and you can know where you're going. Thanks for listening to the North Richland Hills Baptist Church Sermon Audio Podcast. If you'd like more information about our church, go to nrhbc.org.